Welcome to Helpful Social Work. Social work has the power to change people's lives for the better. And this podcast aims to help you learn, think and act with integrity. So people who need social work get help that will transform their lives. Welcome back to Series 7 of Helpful Social Work. And I'm Jo, and I'm here today with John Scadden. Hello. Jerry and I have been aiming this series to do some podcasts with guests, social workers who want to talk about what helpful social work means for them. And I'm really pleased to have our guest, John, here today. I first met John when we were both in practice together in a local authority, and he was managing one of the children in care teams. And everyone was talking about his wise, therapeutic and caring approach to work. Since then, our paths have crossed many times and John has gone on to really build his approach, co-writing a training manual on trauma-informed care, studying to become a Gestalt-related psychotherapist, and all this whilst managing a team in early help. And all that's impressive enough, really, John. But to me, when I speak to people who are working with you, uh, one of the things that impresses me the most is the focus that you have on supporting people to maintain care and helpfulness with what they deliver for children. So creating that space for them to actually be able to focus on children and families. And um, in a time when demand is high and resource is low, it's really hard to focus on what matters. And I think that's one of the things that you are constantly trying to make sure you achieve Um, as a leader and a social worker. So I'm thrilled to have you on the program. And um, I thought we should start off, as we always do, by just asking you, um, do you have a quote that inspires you, something that you try to live by? Absolutely. I have two quotes, actually. And the first one is about, it's by Brené Brown, and it really resonates with me. It's shame. Everyone has it and no one wants to talk about it. But the less we talk about it, the more we have of it. And it comes on to my other quote by Ali Munro in 2010, which I think comes together. It all too often workers appear to go through the motions of following guidance and procedures aimed at meeting the needs of the children without demonstrating a commitment to the individual child or family. And I think there's something there about our process it can be quite shaming and how we shame parents who may have been shamed by their own trauma as a child and don't know how to parent their own children differently. So I'm a big believer that we need the guidance and the procedures, but not to let it stifle curiosity and the appreciative inquiry, empathy. How can we, as a social worker, in our interactions with families, create a caring relationship that enables healing and motivation and can lead to recovery from traumatic life experiences in children and parents together. Yeah, thanks, thanks, John. That's a that's a really great place for us to start our conversation because I, I agree with you. Shame is such a strong corrosive emotion and it is something we all try to avoid actually um you know because no nobody's immune from it and one of the unfortunate things is that if you work with children's social care 
shame is evoked in you, regardless of how the social worker approaches you, um, you know, that feeling of shame is is there in you. Mm. Um, and I certainly relate to this um, having had experiences being a service user myself for my son in the past. Um, and even though my son and I were working together to try to overcome things, I still felt that shame that I couldn't I couldn't do anything for him. Yeah. And and so I think that, you know, it's a really important thing for social workers to remember, isn't it? We don't mean to evoke shame. It's not an, our intention, but it, it rises in the other person. And then if you think about, as you say, past trauma and life experiences as well. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And I think as well, what's really important as a social worker, when you go through that front door, the shame there is the white elephant in the room. Mm. And shame does those survival technique as well that we use in our brain. And it's, that's why it's really important as social workers, we use empathy to connect and say, you know, we know this can be hard for you. We're here to help. We're here because we care. You know, and I think it's that tenacity of showing that we're here to care and help. And sometimes we might not get things right. Sometimes we might, might not agree on things, but we always have a common goal. And that common goal is about helping and coming together to look at recovery, to look at support, to look at actually, this is hard for me and I need help for myself. Yeah. And I think that 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 word recovery is a lovely word as well because it's so full of hope, isn't it? Yeah. Um, because it it's talking of acknowledging trauma, but also moving past it. Absolutely. And and that's um that's a lovely a lovely thing for social workers to hold on to as well, and a really important gift to give families, because I've been um thinking a lot about the different types of help. And for me, I've kind of um, started writing about hopeless help, the type of help that pulls hope away and that makes people feel as if nothing can change and how very damaging mm. that is. So I think, you know, recovery is the opposite side and of it. And I like the word recovery really resonates with me. And as a leader, I talk about recovery in, with social workers and early health workers in their practice. What does recovery look like? I've talked about it with family because I think, yes, we have to have procedures to safeguard, we have to safety plan, we have to manage risk, we have to have those rather than challenging competition, courageous competition. How can we have courageous competition and be hopeful about recovery? and how we use that language, because language is so important. It doesn't matter whether you're a child or an adult, the language makes all the difference. In those interaction, caring interaction with caring language, it's really powerful. Recovery, resilience, those kind of words. I don't think actually we use it enough, and I know my passion, my aim as a leader in social work, is to get social workers and practitioners talking about recovery and resilience as well as balancing that with adversity and risk. Yes, I, I think that's right, John, because, you know, the people, 
who are looking for social work support and help or who need social work support and help to get the deficits because we're living them every day you know <laughs> you're yeah. in there having that experience you know what you can't do you know what you're what you're struggling with you understand that hopelessness um what you need to be able to hook into is your strengths your resiliences the resiliences of the community the resources that are around you um that offer mm. that chance of that chance of change um, and recovery. That's that's what you're looking for in terms of the language um, and a kind of listing of all the things that have gone wrong all the time can get very wearing. Absolutely. And I think that's when you get that transfer on the, um, the secondary trauma the vicarious trauma, when social workers become traumatised by their own caseload, their own prosthetic, because it's that come by about it, isn't it? So it's mm. about being able to train that, being the hamster on that ring, running round and round and round, and being very task-oriented. Okay, we have to be task-oriented, but how can we be creative? How can we use relationships as tools? And that's the beauty of trauma-informed practice that I like in social work. The child or the adult will always remember the one person in their life who showed empathy, compassion and care, even if they just talked about it. There'll be a child who will say, I remember that social worker out of all the many that I might have had, that one made the difference because of my relationship, the cared and the showed that, or the teacher. We all remember somebody in our lives when we've had difficult times in our lives. That made a difference just by being there and listening and talking and yeah help accessing the right help yeah thank you john there's there's a huge amount already for us to think about and that's just come from from your quotes so yeah. <laughs> thank you so much um we normally ask guests uh, four questions and i know that you've you've had them there so i'm going to ask the first one and it's just uh, quite open it's would you like to just say a little bit about your life so far in social work yeah i've, I've been a social worker for over 23 years now um and I remember how green it was and how terrifying it was. Such a big job and so much to learn. But, you know, the one thing I've never lost is my passion for it. My passion for helping families and working with families. And um, I've specialised in mental health and um, substance misuse. And, and I work very closely with a manager called Judy Kitchen, who I know worked with you, John. I found her a very inspirational manager and I, she inspired that need and desire to be a better social worker, to grow and be as skilled as she was. She was a very inspiring manager for me and loved working with her. And we really got into all the substance misuse and working with families who have been through so much and so many layers and so complex. So I really enjoyed that, some mainstream safeguarding. And my next step, I've gone into 
following a stinting early help, which are nearly low because that really taught me about the other end of the spectrum, how can and really informed my development as a social worker about how can we be more early, more preventative, because I think sometimes we get too much to work can't quite as respond. And it's sometimes too late or too difficult then, or too damaging when we think about child development. So early help was the beginning of my uh, learning about knowing more about child development and how important it is. We should be working with pregnant parents, mothers and fathers and families and doing more developmentally in our work. And I'm sure we could make a difference in that way for later on. And now I'm on a journey of training as a psychotherapist and I've written, as you said, a manual in trauma-informed practice with the forward model, which is about relationship, resilience, reconnecting and recovery, which is a really important word. Reconnecting with ourselves in order to reconnect with our children and make differences. And so now I'm trained psychotherapist and I do trauma-informed supervision with children looked at for social workers, early health and the match front door, which is all about how do we slow down in our practice and breathe and begin to understand families. And I've been using a lot of your strengthening practice program, um, the risk resilience tool, which I do with the match front door, getting them to think more about resilience as well as protective factors because it's too much about what's going wrong. Mm -hmm. So we're really enjoying that and the match has given me really good feedback that using the risk resilience and the trauma-informed approach is really in getting them to think differently and more creatively, creatively mm -hmm. with family but being able to create relationships very quickly through telephone calls with service users and to have much more meaningful impact straight away. And that picks up on that idea again, doesn't it, of the earlier we can be helpful, the more we can focus on strengths and building families up, mm. um, the earlier in the process, the more the more effective the process will be, um, the better change that we'll make. And that's, that front door is so important um, in terms of that con that first contact um, and how families perceive us. I think, you know, for me as a social worker, one of my ambitions has always been that when people are allocated a social worker, they would feel a sense of relief and gladness mm. and think, okay, good, we're going to get some great help here. Um, and that comes from that, that initial approach, doesn't it? Absolutely, and I think we do too much volunteer and mm. we need to be more restorative. And I think if you have that front door to the transition where the assessment team or however the system lie in this country about social workers becoming involved, if there is a language that's based around rather than saying, well, you need to work with DV services, you need to do this, you need to do that, and we're going to hand you over to a social worker who will assess it. It must be about, I can hear what's happened, and this is why I've read that's happened. This must have been really hard for you, you know, and it must be hard for you to receive a call from me today. You must have been really worried about that, and they usually are. Mm, of and course. Then you have the conversations about, 
you know, what are you doing that's working well for you now, right now? What does recovery look like? If we're to get a social worker involved, how would we explore recovery for you? And the man may be able to say things like, well, actually, I might need to work with services that keep me safe and my children from domestic violence, rather yeah. than saying, well, you need to go to this service and that service. You need a non molestation order, et cetera, et cetera. And I think sometimes that inhibits the engagement because then people are pushed into the shamefulness then. Yeah, and they and they I'm start to defend, don't they? It makes this. you, yeah, it makes you defend um, straight away. I, I don't, yeah, you know, and minimise. Mm. It's not really that bad. I don't really need this. And also the amount of things that we sometimes tell people to do, just the sheer, you know, like, well, how many of these things do we have to do? Um, and I know for me, you know, like I said in my in my own family. At one stage, I think we had, you know, four different types of involvement <laughs> that we were trying to coordinate and make sense of. Um, and, and that was all voluntary. And it still felt quite overwhelming. So, um, and sometimes a little bit contra contrary to each other. So I can see how, you know, presenting somebody with a long list of all the things they need to do to fix themselves. Um, you know, is not as helpful as saying what would recovery look like and feel like to you, you know, if your family was was working the way you wanted it to. Yeah. What would that be? What would that look like? What would I see when I came into your house? What would you and see? Sometimes you might say, uh, it's okay to say you don't know as well. That's yeah. why we're here. Yeah. We'll help you find out what you don't know. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's about being open about those kind of things. Didn't mm. uh, make the difference. And it strikes me, John, in your whole approach that what you're talking about here is having those curious conversations where you don't set yourself up as the expert, although you bring expertise, because yeah. I think it's really important that you bring both skills and resources in into um, a family, but that you're sitting alongside I get this picture of sitting alongside people being curious about what good would look like and feel like for them. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Because it's about sometimes about the honesty as well, about saying, Do you know what? It appeared I don't know. And maybe you don't know. Maybe we need to find out together what we don't know. And doing something as simple as a genogram. To so map out the family, you go, oh, actually, we can see all the patterns and that systemic family approach. And that helps them go, oh, I didn't realise my brother and sister were in the same situation as me because we had the same childhood. Mm. I've learned, and just by that one session, that one competition, we can learn so much together and it feels so collaborative when you do that. Yeah, and it's nice that you've um, highlighted as you've gone along talking, not only about the kind of relational part of the practice, but also um, about the evidence and the tools um, and the knowledge base we bring so that we're not we're not just a kind neighbour sitting, listening to somebody. We're actually bringing expertise in and we're using tools and different approaches and methods to actually help people have insight 
mm. in in into their situation. Um, and I do think holding the tension between the conversation and the expertise, oh, and allowing yeah. space for the family to kind of you know gain insight is is it's it's a, it's a tricky job, isn't it? It's a tricky job, and I think that I always like to the the other social worker when I used to ho- do a home visit was to create purpose. I have to have purpose. The mm-hmm. family has to have purpose. So along that, that we get in and hopeful that we have purpose. And, we, and it's very much human nature that how do we work with those human natures? We all need a purpose in life. We all need to understand something. So I think for me, having a purpose with tools helps me to get there with the family, which is really, really important so that they can say, uh, I can do what you can do, or actually I might go, or oh, I can now do what you already knew. Yeah. Yeah, it's those shared insights. That's that's really lovely. And I think we've moved into the second question, um, or I, I guess I feel I'm getting more insight into what you might say in the second question. But um, our second question is, what does helpful social work mean to you? The big, big one, that one. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we've talked a lot about what we think helpful social worker is for family. I also think perhaps in this day, I want to talk about helpful social worker is about modelling what we do with family within our own system, mm. the nurturing, the care, empathy, and leadership, mentoring, and I'm very, very passionate about that. So when I'm doing supervision with social workers or practitioners, I don't just sit there about telling them what to do, because that's the same model what you do with family. You know, I will explore creatively and reflectively what they think going on with those families, what's going on for them, how would it trigger in them, you know, because we very much get into where families won't engage with us, and what we do then, back to the shame, is put the blame back to the family when it's your fault you've not engaged. Mm. And we don't think enough about what it is about us that might have made that family not engage with us because it's a two-way thing. So I like to use supervision to create the confrontation when they might say, well, she's not engaging with me. And so we'll talk about different ways about how we might engage the family from that social worker's perspective. Can I ask you, just because you just made me think then um, about shame and about whether part of what we do, uh, first of all, I agree with you totally about the system and how I've always thought that how can we expect social workers to go out and behave in a certain way with children and families if we're not treating them in that way in the system they're working in. But when you talked then about families feeling shame and social workers saying, well, they're not working with us, I wondered whether social workers felt shame that they were not able to make a difference in this family. And so they displaced their own shame onto the family. This family's not cooperating so that they didn't have to deal with their own sense of failure and 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 the emotions that come and the frustration that comes and the shame that comes from constantly not being able to make change or deliver or make enough difference in the time scales or evidence at all any of the that kind of treadmill you were thinking about 
Absolutely. And I think there's something there about training, which is really important for social worker, that just because you're qualified as a social worker, you never stop learning, never mm. stop training. It's so vitally important. And giving social worker the space to be able to say, I couldn't engage that person, I didn't understand why. And in trauma-informed supervision, what I tend to do very often is get them to think about their own interaction, their own behaviour, their own personality, because they may trigger families. And if we go into families and be parental, then those parents will revert back to how they were parented as children, mm. and we become the bad guy. Mm. And it's really, really important how we keep away from being critical parents if we need to be a parent, that we do it in a way that's firm and nurturing, mm. which is really important, because sometimes the parent needs a parent in the relationship because they might not have had that in parenting their own children. Actually, my mum was terrible. I brought myself up. Mm. I lived in all of this chaos. And, I, and to be honest, I'm replicating the same cycle. So you can be that role model. Mm. So it's being aware of how we might project our style and also being aware of the precarious trauma when we're stressed. We've got big caseload, we've got multiple demands being placed on us about compliance. That can really stifle our creativity and our desire to work with families creatively and get them to work with us. That becomes a backup. And I think what I've found really effective with trauma-informed supervision and reflective supervision on KD is to talk about you know, how do they want to engage? How are they hopeful about this family? And how can they tell the family in such a way? Actually, we don't seem to be getting on here. How can we overcome this? And social workers come back really empowered and revitalized, gone. Mm. I've had an honest conversation with them, like you said, and just that we're not getting anywhere today, are we? We mm. seem to be we're going back over and over, and you don't seem to find me helpful, and I don't, I feel like I can't help you. How can mm. we get past it and bang that can have those honest conversations in a kind way that can be about actually we need to do something differently, don't we? Yeah, and as you say, all of that comes from the support the social worker is given. So a helpful social worker is a social worker who has taken and been offered the space to reflect. Yeah. Which allows them to really be purposeful in the encounters they have. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. And another example had a social worker who talked about a case that she'd had before with a Polish family and a lot of mental health issues. And this was about a young girl who had to go and live with her dad in the UK but wanted to be in Poland but her mum had mental health problems. And nobody could engage this girl. And we talked about why she might not engage. And I just stepped something along the line of, do you know what? This is a girl that misses Poland. Go and talk to her and say, tell me about Poland. What what was life like in Poland? What are your cultures? What are your traditions? What kind of food you, do you like? Because we have a Polish cafe, do you fancy going? Um, wow, she came back and she went, she told me everything. I cannot believe what she told me. And what we need to do with the worst and safe garden issue. But mm. she was quite happy for us to help her with those safe garden issues. And she said it because she took an interest in me, in my culture, me as a person. 
that's what it's about, isn't it? Helpful social work is about me as a person, how would I want to be treated? The mm. social worker came across my doorstep. And how do I need to convey that in the way that I work with the family to make a difference? Mm. Yeah, thanks, John. There's lots of lots of things for us to think about there, um, particularly in how we as a profession create the the expectations for good reflective supervision, for good trauma-informed supervision, for good training and continuous professional development, um, you know, because that's a, a responsibility of the profession, isn't it, to set up the um, structures and the expectations of how we work that enable us to do our best work, because actually you can do lots of work quite poorly. Absolutely, yeah. And there's no nil cost to doing poor work in this field uh, because it has it all leaves an impact on the other person. Um, and so for me, there's really something about thinking about the larger system and thinking about, um, you know, our bodies like BASWA and Social Work England um, and the DfE and all the other places that develop and build these expectations of our profession and how we feed into them and how we're clear about what our profession needs um, to be helpful in the right way. Um, we're talking relational social work here, yeah. aren't we? Fundamentally, yeah. the principle is relational social work. It's all about relationships and yeah. we can have training, we can have all that, but those skills are already in us. And like you said, it doesn't cost much or mm. too much to actually sit together in a room and do a group supervision on a case about relational mm. social work practice. Mm. And everybody learns from that and everybody gets something from it and takes it away and go, oh, I'll try that on my case. Yeah. You know, so there's lots of things there that we can do. Yeah, and it is about, you know, really prioritising them, prioritising them over many other things. So thinking about that, can you give an example, so a good concrete example of a truly helpful social work encounter? Yeah, um, I'm going to use myself as an example. When I was a social worker, a child looked at her um, over 20, 20 years ago, and he experienced really traumatic stress, um, toxic trio, very severe neglect. This boy had to survive in a very, very harsh environment. And sadly, he had to go into care. And um, he was placed with his sibling. And it was a very difficult placement for him. And I had to work really hard to understand his lived experience and how it, how that shaped his child development, how that influenced his relationship from an attachment point of view, because attachment is about survival. In his case, it was distorted because of what he'd gone through and the extreme environment that he'd lived in. And unfortunately, that placement broke down for him. Now, it was unfortunate in the sense that it was another move for him, but it gave me an opportunity because it was a case I inherited to get it right for him. <clears throat> Sorry, I lost my voice there, to get it right for him. 
That's um, a lovely story, John, and very moving. And there is something very powerful about hearing from someone that you've worked with um, and hearing what they think of their life. Yeah, yeah, that they think their life is worthwhile um, and that they feel successful. That's a really, a really strong statement for someone to be able to to make. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And I think, you know, it has all the elements that we were talking about in terms of taking the time, having the relationship, understanding the trauma, thinking about recovery looking at moving resources um, in place to really build that resilience and take advantage of, of the things that the young person could do throughout their life. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. And just finally, before we finish, what would your final message be to social workers today? Well, what I became trained in trauma-informed practice and more aware about relational practice because we've really moved towards this, haven't we, relational social work practice over the last few years. Mm. That I've reflected on my own practice 
and really thought about, mm, you know, I could have said and done things differently. But I think what's really important is a social worker to other social workers in your practice. Really think about empathy, really think about language, and really think about how you can convey you're there for family and show that persistence that you're not going to give up on them and be hopeful for them, especially when it can be very dark and scary for family and for children what they're going through. And that's a tough one because you've got to balance it alongside agencies and local authorities, what you're expected to do. So just try and find a moment for yourself with family when you visit them and really think about how can I connect with that person and show that I'm there for them and I care because it makes all the difference. Mm. And I think that that's really important and to really make sure that we feel, help families feel empowered, that they have a part and a stay and ownership in their own assessment, in their own plan, like safety plans, for example, you know, whatever kind of plan that they are the centre of that plan mm. and that we are there to help them put that plan into action mm. and to see the progress. Mm. And stuff like that. So I think that's a really, really important thing. Not to get swept in that mean machine of assessment and planned and paperwork. You know, don't forget you're there to work with people. Mm. Well, thank you, John. It's been really lovely to talk to you. It always is. Um, I'm so glad that you agreed to be a guest on our podcast. Um, and yes. I'm sure you'll go off and keep doing great things. Thank so, you very much for your time and I've enjoyed this. Goodbye. Goodbye.